This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Michael has been a staff writer for The New Yorker since 1998. He writes often about science, technology, and global public health. And since joining the magazine, he has published articles about genetically engineered foods, the world's diminishing freshwater resources, and the use of geoengineering to mitigate climate change. His most recent book, Denialism, How Irrational Thinking Hinders Scientific Progress, Harms the Planet, and Threatens Our Lives, has received the 2009 Robert Bales Annual Prize in Critical Thinking. We are excited to have him here, and we look forward to the conversation that he will help facilitate. So it's with great pleasure that I introduce Michael Spector. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. I hate to be introduced that way because I can never live up to any of those things. Um, but I'll try. I, I first want to thank Mary Robert Robinson for doing two things. One, she said all the things I wanted to say much more eloquently than I could, so I can keep my remarks brief. And secondly, she's one of the few political leaders, unfortunately, that actually goes to the places where there are problems, talks about them, and talks about them in real terms. And if we had a few more of those people around, we might not even have to have these forums. But we do not, and I don't see that changing real soon. So we're grateful that we at least have her. Um, I'm going to just say a few things. And I, first, I guess what I'll do is I'll introduce our panel in the most ridiculously brief way. I'm going to give about a word for each of them. They're worth many, many more than one word. But you do what you can in this world. So on the end, we have, can I do the, do I, oh, wow, this is so high tech. So Martin Crispils is at University of California. He's a geneticist and knows quite a bit about molecular biology and I think believes that science will play a role in feeding the future. Jonathan Schreier is a representative of the U.S. State Department that is helping us try to figure out ways to feed the world and to do it cooperatively. Rebecca Peters is a student at Berkeley, and she is a person who, unlike my generation, seems to actually care about what happens in the future. <laughs> um, Salman Katz is from UPenn, an anthropologist, and does so many interesting things involving soil, water, and why we are living the way we're living that we'll get into it. Howard Ibarra Shapiro is many things. My most favorite of them is he's uh, the chief scientist at Mars and makes that company one of the most caring about sustainability in the world, which is not that easy. Uh, Cheryl Doss teaches at Yale. She's an economist. She f has focused a lot on women's issues in agrarian reform and other things too, but I think we'll talk a lot about that today. Jim Harkness has done pretty much everything. He's been an advisor to every single <laughs> company or organization that has the word food in it. Um, so he'll talk about a lot of things, but right now he's the president of the International Association for Trade and 
close. In- Institute for Agriculture and okay. Trade Policy, but you were close. I was close. Give me a break. Anuranda Mittal is the head of the Oakland Institute and is deeply concerned about issues of equity in ownership and farming of land, as well as gender equality. Ronald Herring is a professor at Cornell and has been writing about these things for a long time and has some very interesting insights into, I think, why we think the way we think about certain approaches to farming, among many other issues that we will talk about. Donald Bransford is our farmer. It's always good to have one. Um, But he's a lot more than that. Um, And he's a very sophisticated man, and he can talk about the big issues, the small issues, and everything in between. And Brian Swim is a cosmologist, and we really need to have more cosmologists on these panels. I'm not kidding. Um, He has a very broad view of where we fit in the universe, and we have a very solipsistic view. So it's kind of nice to have that perspective. And Garrett Spazito is a professor at Berkeley who's done many interesting things about soil, conservation, water issues, and agrarian reform. In other words, you have all the knowledge here that you need. The problem is that we never seem to put it to the right use. So I'm just going to say a few words. I'm going to... This is going to be a conversation. I have questions. Everyone else up here can have questions for each other or themselves, or God forbid, me. Um, And we'll just take it from there. We're going to try not to make presentations. We're going to just try to talk. And, you know, first I want to say it's an honor to be here. Um, And a little bit about why this meeting matters. There's a lot of room to debate these priorities and values, what matters on this planet, what we care about. We do it all the time. But there are also issues about which I don't think there is a lot of room for debate. They are facts. And one of the facts is we live in a world with about more than 6 billion residents, and in the next 30 years, we're going to have to grow as much food as we have grown in all of human history to feed the people that will be on this planet. That's a lot of food. That raises some questions. How are we going to do that? How are we going to do it equitably? Because we have radically diminishing water resources, and the water resources we have are never seem to be in the right place. Canada and China have about the same amount of, of potable water. China has 43 times more people than Canada. Nobody's fault, but it does create some problems. Um, water tables are disappearing in India. Um, we have climate change issues that remarkably, whatever they do, will, and, and, and we don't really know, and they may even improve crops in certain latitudes, but there's no question that in the places that are screwed the most, they're going to get hit worse than anywhere else. And that's something we have got to deal with, and it's very hard to deal with it because it's an issue of fairness and equity, and we don't like those issues. Um, As President Robinson mentioned, about half of the world goes to bed every night either hungry, two billion folks, or Fat, a billion. And by fat, I mean just excessive amounts of calories. Cheap calories, we consume the wrong kind of calories. America is an amazing country. We're amazing because we are able to produce cheap calories, and that is actually a triumph. And it's allowed a lot of other things to happen. But we are consuming calories in a way that is causing tremendous physical harm to our country, and I think to the world, because... 
And this is a sad thing. It's not just a question of growing. It's a question of getting richer. So India and China are getting richer. And there are more and more, millions more middle class people every week, and that's a great thing. However, what they seem to do often is when they get a little richer is eat like us. And that means more meat. And more meat means more land. It means more water consumption. It means more obesity. It means more diabetes. And it's a very difficult issue. The fastest growing McDonald's in the world are in those two countries, and it's not a coincidence. And it's very difficult for people in the West, i.e. us, to say, gee, you shouldn't eat all that meat. You're wasting the land. We're running out of arable land. So the question is, how are we going to farm that land? And that is a question that I think I want to just start, because it's very simple. Oh, by the way, our plan, talk for a couple hours, have lunch, and then we'll resolve all the issues facing <laughs> us after lunch. And we'll tie it up in a nice, neat bow. Um, Honestly, uh, we're going to just kick it around. And then I think in the afternoon, if we could maybe try to think of things that seem like plausible ways to approach these problems, that would be nice. That's my goal. Other people may have different goals. Um, I'm, I'm interested in the issue of genetically engineered food. I've written about it a lot. I've spoken about it a lot. I've been, I've been denounced a lot for my belief that we need it in the future. We need science in the future. That there are dangers to everything and that people only talk about risks or benefits. They never talk about both. Is there anyone on this panel who thinks we shouldn't be pursuing the sort of cutting edge fruits of science, which I believe involve engineering food? I'm, I'm not against it, but it's how we're pursuing it is the key issue. In, in when we dealt with genetics, human genetics, all of the money that was spent on human, doing the human genome work, a percentage of it, uh, around 7%, was left over for each, for each dollar that was spent, 7 cents was invested in the ethical, legal, and social implications of each of the discoveries as they were occurring. We, in the same situation with regard to food, we haven't invested the necessary and timely discussion of each of the developments in the, geno in the, in the GMOs, uh, and therefore the USDA never did something like the NIH did for the Human Genome Project. So if we had that as a parallel development, and if we implement it even now as a parallel development, I think a lot of the problems that people have had with regard to specific GMOs not the, and the GMO process would uh, disappear. Do you, has anyone ever seen protests against uh, genetically engineered insulin for diabetics? Because I actually have never seen that. I've never seen a European country threaten trade barriers. I've never seen Americans rise up against it. But they do seem to do that with other genetically engineered products. And I wonder if it's because we've promised a lot and what we've delivered are things that have been good for farmers and good for cheap calories, but haven't changed the world in any way, really. I mean, it's very difficult to go to Switzerland and say you need GE corn. It would be really nice to go to Mali and say we have cassava that's been engineered in such a way that you'll get your micronutrients. Do you think that's the problem? Or do you think that 
is, is our over-reliance on technology a problem? Maybe, uh, sure. No, anyone can speak. We're Democrats. I, I think small D, small, small, small. I, mean, I, I think one of the big... I take no sides. I, I think that part of the problem is that you're framing the question in a, a way that uses the same words that created the problem. And as long as we're going to have a dialogue which uses the same terms and phrases. And in the human genome work, if you were to go to the patent and trade office, there's hundreds and hundreds of pages of patents on the human genome, on molecules, on this piece of DNA, on that piece of DNA. And we haven't had the kind of uh, rapacious response to that that we've had to the patenting of plant mechanisms in the same way. Rapacious, you mean by companies? Yes. I actually would disagree because Myriad Genetics has patented the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes, which are highly reflective of whether a woman would inherit breast cancer. It's a case that's going before the Supreme Court right now. And basically, there are a lot of companies that own the genes in our body right now. But that's what I was saying, exactly. There's oh. hundreds of pages of those patents uh, that exist. And one thing we have to do is change the conversation. The, the objection to most of the criticism to how we think about genetic engineering today, and I think we could probably make a list from Pam Ronald's book of 10 or 12 words, and almost sure. no one in this room could define all those words. Maybe some of the panelists could. I was going to ask a couple of those words at some point. But, but I guess my point is that as we consider what the ability for those technologies to deliver, most of the things that Mary was talking about are not those crops. They're the food crops that are eaten in the rural sector, grown by women which produce 80% of the food in rural Africa and in Asia and in South America. Similarly, what we've done is we have forgotten about all that food, thinking that, well, they can eat soya, they can eat maize, they can eat sorghum, they can eat cassava, when in fact, the fundamental foods for the first thousand days are not those foods. So I think that there's a chance to shift the paradigm on virtually all the food crops which aren't in the top ten and put all of that in the public domain. And I'll just make a quick pitch to the African Orphan Crops Consortium, which is doing that right now for 96 food crops in Africa, all put in the public domain, all protected from patenting. So it's there, a good idea, there has to be another way of thinking about this. I agree, but I, maybe on. Sure. Um, I think one of the issues is that we cannot separate politics from science and the questions of who controls the technology, who owns it, they become really relevant. Also, the questions around transparency. Uh, so this whole separation of the sciences from the larger public domain and the farming community itself, and to add to what was just said, what are the crops that are feeding people, the majority of the people in the world, uh, that the women farmers are growing in the developing world, for instance? Uh, what do livelihoods really depend on? So there's a disconnect between the two, and, and we have to look at what actually is in the market today and what uh, the promises that have been made, what has been delivered so far, as you said. Yeah, I, um, <clears throat> I think it's much more complicated than that. The, um, the thing is, you, you say the word GMO and it comes out Monsanto, right? Um, and the great Satan, yes. Well, it, it sends to. I, I, I think it's much more complicated. Think about uh, pro-vitamin A, um, beta-carotene-enriched rice. 
uh, all those property rights were settled on, on a charitable foundation. It's controlled by a humanitarian board. And there is still virulent opposition to golden rice. For, a dec- for more than a decade. It couldn't for more than go a decade. The, the numbers, uh, uh, Ingo Petrakis was the man of the year cover picture for Time magazine in 2000. And said this man could save several million children a year. Uh, Ingo has on his website a little counter. Every day that we don't approve golden rice, this many kids go blind from vitamin A deficiency. Um, and, and indeed, it is true. As um, I'm sorry, I don't know everybody's name, so I'm, I'm looking around the. the Just yeah, say you. Yana, right? Okay. Um, it, it, it's true that the reduction in dietary richness to a few commodities makes all these things much more difficult. So rice is not particularly good uh, as a nutritional base, but if you're a poor person, it, beco- it becomes the base of your calories, and therefore you miss a lot of micronutrients. I mean, that, that's kind of inevitable. But the rice plant can produce provitamin A. It can produce beta-carotene, but not in the endosperm. So the only way to get the endosperm to have the provitamin A was through genetic engineering. But this is, yeah. goes back to my admittedly simplistic question, and on, I'd just like to say I'm a journalist, so that's what we do. Um, people blame Monsanto for everything. I, I do not. But this has nothing to do with companies. It has to do with It's not a country or a company. It's a scientific process. And it's still bitterly objected to. People talk about the horror. I don't want to get into this too much, but people are objecting to all the use of suicide seeds that Monsanto owns, except there are none. Because 11 years ago, when they tried to buy the company that had a patent and they ended up not buying the company, they said they would never use it. And no one has ever used it. Doesn't mean it couldn't be used. But that people actually use that as an excuse to blame a company for something. And the, the emotions are so high. And the rational thought seems to be so rare that I don't know if it's just a question of if we just did the science, everyone would be fine. It doesn't seem to work that way. And, and the Ingo Petroikis thing is an example. Well, can I just add on that just a, a bit? Um, you know, it's a funny thing about patents. Uh, of course, they're national, right? So Roundup Ready Soy was rejected as a patent in 1995 in Argentina. The seeds went viral in rural areas. They went across the border to Uruguay, Paraguay, Brazil. 2002, they discovered that all of Rio Grande do Sul was running with uh, transgenic soy. Uh, And they said, oops, what are we going to do now? And the president uh, at the time, Lula, said, I can't do anything about this. What do you tell 500,000 farmers? They can't continue to grow a crop that they find useful. They were back-crossing it, moving it. They called these Maradona seeds because they were fast and elusive and came from Argentina. (laughs) The ones coming back from Brazil are called Ronaldino seeds because they, they are fast, elusive, and come from Brazil. Um, uh, you learn something Ma- every day about soccer. <laughs> Rebecca, you're, um, what, what do you think about the use of science in agriculture, the use of big agriculture versus small? And what do you, I don't mean to make you speak for your entire generation, but I kind of do. <laughs> Um, In doing my best to represent the student voice, I think that it's important to consider the perspective of the people we're trying to serve. So ultimately, what I found through my field work is that a lot of people don't think that transgenic seeds have a place in local agriculture because of the way it tends to wipe out local varieties of crops that have a lot of cultural value. And 
in the long run, it seems that these GMO seeds are really dispossessing farmers of their ability to make uh, decisions. So, yes. Okay, I have a couple questions there that others can answer. Do transgenic seeds wipe out other crops? Because as far as I'm concerned, monoculture is a difficult thing, and it creates resistance because Darwin said it would, and he's always right. Monoculture of GMOs does that? Monoculture of anything? You plant 10,000 acres of something, and you're going to develop pests who are resistant to whatever you put on it or in it. It doesn't matter, I don't think. So is there someone who thinks... I, I would say that they, they don't exclusively. You're right that hybrid, hybrid seeds that are grown in an industrial way with, with Roundup or with other things, oh, yeah, could, could do the same. But um, in practice, the fact is that, that GMOs like Roundup Ready Corn and Soy have. And so but I, don't the think the question, I don't think science? the question is about are we for or against GMOs. I, I, I think that if you wanted... Uh, if you wanted plant biologists or geneticists or ecologists who could, in environmental terms and genetic terms, argue the merits of, of GMOs, you could have invited them. You could, have, you could have found them from the University of California system. But well, I don't Pam feel like Ronald would have come, but she was busy. I, I don't feel like I don't feel like you you know that they're here. For for me, the bigger question is. This question of is it being oversold? I mean, I mean, I think the question of who owns the technology is is relevant. I think the other one is 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 it being oversold? Because um, uh, you know, if there are a limited number of resources we have to try to feed hungry people, um, I, I think that just as in the case of climate, the problem is one of social justice more than it is of do we have the right technologies for sequestering carbon. In the case of feeding the planet as well, growing enough fruit food has, you know, isn't the only and I don't think even the most important challenge we have. I agree with that, and I'll move on. I'll agree to move on momentarily. Um, go ahead. Yes, I think it is the wrong question. That is, if this morning's uh, discussion is supposed to be about feeding the world, that is the global issues, I think biotechnology or GMOs are going to make a minuscule con or can make a minuscule contribution to this. So uh, I, I think we shouldn't spend all that much time on it. This is not the real issue. The real issue is uh, things, and, and I, I know more about GMOs than about the other issues, I mean, unfortunately. <laughs> but but, because I'm a plant molecular biologist, all right, and I've made some GMOs, uh, the real issues are that there are no jobs and there is poverty, that women have not enough education, that there is no infrastructure, that uh, uh, those are, that the, the, the farming systems need to be improved, and all of that needs to come from the bottom up. As, You're talking about the developing world. As, yeah, yeah. And uh, I, that's, isn't that what this uh, morning is about, about the global issues rather than, <laughs> rather Just, than the California issues? I wasn't told that. All right. So, uh-oh. Uh um, so my view is that GMOs 
can make a minuscule contribution to that. I, I agree. I actually, right. the only thing, the last thing I'll say about that is the fight is not minuscule, and it preoccupies people's attention and time, and smart, energetic researchers and agronomists and agriculture experts spend a lot more time fighting over this than they should when they should be focusing on getting food to people. And, and I agree. And I like to talk about gender issues because it's, those are way more important than this. Well, one of the issues I think we are addressing here is about putting all your eggs in one basket. If we look at the resources that are being put to deal with the issues that have been just talked about, we are trying to look for the silver bullet solution. Let's take the case of the golden rice, vitamin A rice. People who have vitamin A deficiency also have other deficiencies. It's linked to undernutrition. So instead of focusing on the problems of poverty that are preventing people in the developing countries, these children, to have adequate diets, we want to find a quick fix solution. One of the big opposition and the reasons it has not been in the market was that you had to, you know, a grown-up, an adult, would have to consume nearly eight to nine pounds of rice to catch up to the deficiency. Years ago, that was so, 20 so, years ago. so the fact is, you said 20 years it hasn't moved because it took a long time to move. But the, we could be focusing on how to address issues of poverty. It is the same ag fundamentals that we have started this morning with. How will we feed you know, 8 billion people by 2025? These same fundamentals are being used right now by private equity funds, by the other resource grabbers that Africa can feed herself and the rest of the world. So the kind of land grabs, for instance, the kind of resource grabs. Could you be specific grabs, when you're talking about equity funds and land grabbers? Uh, Where, who, what? Well, let's talk about, I can give you an example of, say, emergent asset management based in UK, who is investing in so-called agriculture in African countries, who will say that we need to invest to feed poor people of Africa. Then you see the video at an investment conference, who will say, we can be moronic and not grow food, and we will still make money. So I'm talking about these ag fundamentals, who will feed China, who will feed India. They're driving a resource grab of land, water, that we need to grow food, which is actually contributing further to food insecurity. I agree. How would we deal with the water issue? Um, we don't, I mean, on, on the one hand, the amount of water that is on Earth continues to be on Earth and is the same amount since the age of the dinosaurs, just circulates. But it doesn't necessarily go to the right place at the right time, and it's not used the right way. Um, how do we deal with that in places where it's desperately needed? Yeah, I, anybody. I, I want to say one thing about. I, I want to add politics to this because it's it's what I teach. Uh, I think it's, there's it's, politics. It's a, it's a terrible confession to make, but um, when people when people are opposed to quick fix solutions, I often think you know, as opposed to something as easy to fix as um, assault rifles in our schools. I mean, it's. Any big problem is enormously difficult to f fix politically, and vitamin A deficiency is a narrow little little piece of a much bigger problem on water. I think what I th I hate to disagree with a molecular biologist, but uh, but I think with I'll pay you to disagree no, no. with a molecular biologist. With climate change, I think with climate change, we are going to need a a really radically altered um, set of adaptable plants, adapted to new niches and, and quick breeding to come to, to conclusions, because these, these plants are not going to have the same environment that they've involved in. And I think that means we cannot write off any of the 
the tools in the toolbox is the standard kind of thing. And the opposition to genetic engineering just says, let's, let's not walk on two legs, let's walk on one. We'll cut off the leg that has to do with genetic engineering and try to deal with other approaches to the issue. And, and water politics, actually one thing about water politics that, that is in that frame, we're going to need to deal with water crises much more fundamentally than simply uh, at the aggregate level of water supply, better irrigation. We need better plants. But it, in, in South India, and in fact all over India, part of the problem is that populist politicians are giving farmers what they want. They want cheap credit to d- dig deep wells. There's a hydrological crisis of the commons. The, the tragedy of the commons is that the water table is shrinking very fast because people have cheap credit to get tube wells. This means that rich farmers can put down tube wells and suck dry the hydrological undercarriage, leaving poor farmers unable to get access to the water they've had for generations. Why don't we just um, ration water? Wouldn't that's, that be That's politically thing? impossible. All right, well, I'll no. go further. Okay. Almost everything we talk about to address climate change has been shown not to be possible because we even have a president who was elected and re-elected yeah. who says all the right things about climate change and nothing... And I do think it's fair to say nothing has happened that has moved the dial, at least in this country and to some degree in the West. I I don't know that that's an excuse for not trying, but it's clear that it's true. I mean, we could just go home and say climate change is going to happen. We're not going to address it properly. Let's have lunch. But I'd first like to try, and then we can have lunch. Um, and I think water is something that we can address. We, we certainly don't capture water. We watch it fall. We watch it run down the drains, go down the roads, go down sewers, go out to the ocean again. We, we make almost no attempt to capture water. If we started to capture water uh, in the places that need it the most, and then you had irrigation systems that were... Uh, low input irrigation systems and you had plants that were drought adaptability uh, built into them whether it's through traditional breeding or through turning off senescence when you need to turn it off to have a plant take a break and basically go to a starvation diet of water and then be rewatered and you still get 80% of the yield you might have something going on but till you start to collect water uh, it, it just nothing's going to change. I mean, yeah. they proved it during the Dust Bowl that you could collect water and you could reforest parts of the United States. So we yeah. have all these Gary, examples. You have, he's going to jump in. I wanted to jump in about water. Uh, I, what you're speaking about, most of you here, all of you so far, <clears throat> is what we in the business call blue water. You're speaking about the water that people drink and the water that flows in rivers and the water that is pumped from a groundwater aquifer stored in lakes. But uh, that's a relatively minor part of the water cycle. Uh, It's just that it's got a lot of attention, just like the GMO issue. Uh, If you take a look at, for example, the water cycle, as I do, the amount of water which goes into the roots of plants and goes into the atmosphere every year, about 40,000 cubic kilometers, is the same as all the water flowing from all the rivers of the world into the ocean. That water is coming from the soil, and it's called green water. That water is the water that plants actually use to create biomass. Now, that water is not subject to the politics you're talking about. 
Of course, you can say if you irrigate, but irrigation, if you look into it, you'll find out accounts for a very small part of the total world agriculture. Most of the agriculture in the world is rain-fed using what we call green water. That's the water in soil that goes up through the roots of plants and is transpired. We pay an awful lot of attention managing and dealing with infrastructure for blue water, and we fight over it, and we share it with the creatures of the world uh, for whom we have not given a great deal of thought, frankly. Uh, that could, that's a whole dimension to talk about. But very little effort has been spent on the management and resources, relatively speaking, on the management of green water, and yet the flows are this. In fact, the total flow of green, of green water, because some simply leaves the soil and doesn't go through a plant, <clears throat> is about 50% larger than the total flow of blue water, <clears throat> excuse me, and only about one-third of all the blue water in the world is actually accessible <clears throat> Excuse me, sorry, allergies. When I get out in this part of the country, I always get... Me allergies. too. I have drugs. <laughs> I don't, I mean, I don't over do the counter. I don't over the do counter. drugs. It's the American I, pharmaceutical system. I would, uh, I would rather enjoy my allergy. Okay. And at any rate... Um, I really have to disagree with you there, but everyone's entitled. Okay, I've been told to walk around a little because... Um, these guys will have stiff necks if they just look that way. So I'll, I'll just act like a caged animal and walk up and back. Um, can, uh, the water thing still, you're right, but I've been to India a bunch. There are some really good efforts to harvest water, to use it rationally. It is still true, and I forget the number, but after World War II, there were about a million wells in India. Now there are 70 million. I mean, it's some ridiculous, and that's because everyone can buy a pump. And your neighbor puts in a deeper well than you do. They get the water, then you put in a deeper well than them, and pretty soon arsenic comes up and the game is over. Um, how does that stop? Because you guys are talking about rational scientific things, and I actually, and I hate to use this word, but I think there might have to be a political solution to things like that. How do we do that? Um, if I may, um, I think it's important to connect clean water availability and the idea of the human right to safe water uh, as we're talking about agriculture and nutrition because all nutrition interventions will be laid to waste if waterborne diarrhea is a leading cause of malnutrition in children under the age of five. So I think it's crucial that we not only talk about water for agriculture, for irrigation, but also the human right to safe drinking water because it's impossible to maintain nutrients in your body if you have consistent waterborne illness. I agree. I'm not so much talking about just agriculture as having water available um, in, think, in any type. Think about another, uh, to echo your comments, Think about, and, and Mary Robinson's wonderful uh, introductory uh, uh, speech to us today. Think about the issue of prioritizing the human right to food and the human right to water. And, and if you put that as the number one priority, how all these other things would disappear as we begin to enact that. Is there a human right to water somewhere? Yes. There is in 1948. Of course, the United Nations has that in, built in as I, well. I understand. But the question there. is, how are we enforcing it? How are we actually turning it into to, to a priority where, it's, where it's, it's a fundamental moral issue for all of us to uh, assure that that's occurring? If we did it that way, 
a lot of these other problems would quickly disappear because we would put it as a number one priority. Okay, but I have a house in upstate New York and I have a big garden and I can water it 24 hours a day if I want because it's my right. And no one's going to stop me and there are no penalties and I have a big well. And, and I don't do that. But, <laughs> but I could and many people do and the amount of water that we use in this it's not just in the West. Rich people in India use a lot of water. Um, again, I don't know how that changes unless someone controls it. Yeah, we have a human right to water, and we have a human right to food and to dignity and a lot of other things. So what? I think um, unless someone controls it, and, and the key question is who, right? That's so a fairly important I think question. that rather, I mean, and... Typically, the solution would be, well, either the state needs to control it or we need to privatize it so that it'll have a price and therefore right. be efficiently allocated. So Monsanto can control and I, it. Well, or, um, you know, uh, what's, the, uh, what's the, you know, any of the French big water oh, farms, right, 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 because right. there's as much water grabbing as there is going on as there is land grabbing. Um, and, and the fact is that there are other... Um, methods of managing and and managing water as a commons that communities use user groups use where you know your ability to use the resource um, doesn't stem from a an individual property right but you're a member of a community that has uh, common ownership or management of that resource and you're able to use it to the extent that you're not damaging you know the larger resource and and I think figuring out how to ways to ways to scale those types of regimes uh, or, or segment them um, is really what the challenge I is. I want to ask Jonathan, because he actually yeah. kind of does this for a living. Yeah, um, so, yeah let me jump in. Uh, so, uh, first of all, I mean, we've seen played out in the U.S., uh, in, in the Western United States, especially uh, uh, conflicts over competing, uh, use, uh, competing users of water, ranchers and farmers, and we see that played out in the developing world as well. Um, and so there is a need to address these kinds of social uh, issues and, and uh, um, create, help communities create structures for, for mediating these, these, uh, these, these, uh, uh, this competition for the use of the resources. Um, there is also the need for helping uh, farmers adopt ways that are sustainable for increasing their production while also using the, the natural resources sustainably. We, uh, in, in, in the U.S. government, we call this sustainable intensification. There are other terms for it as well. We, we train farmers in conservation agriculture techniques, which involves uh, um, often no-till or low-tillage solutions, because if you don't turn over the soil, you don't release as much of the water into the atmosphere. Um, and it also involves science and, and uh, development of improved crop varieties that can better uh, adapt to the, the changing climate conditions. And so um, uh, just uh, for, for local purposes, since we're here at a conference sponsored by the University of California, um, one of the um, university partnerships that the um, U.S. government has in this development agric uh, agricultural development space is uh, based at UC Davis. Mm -hmm. It's uh, an innovation lab that, among other things, has uh, recently launched a collaborative effort to develop heat-tolerant, uh, drought-tolerant wheat. Right. And that's being done in collaboration with CIMIT, the international uh, um, institution, a research institution that focuses on, on um, uh, maize and wheat, um, and uh, uh, also uh, Arcadia Biosciences. 
And so the, the, the plan is to develop uh, a, um, a, a improved wheat varieties that, um, where CIMIT, the international research uh, um, institution, would have um, non-exclusive rights uh, to market it in, or to provide it into the developing world. So this gets at this uh, equity question of mm -hmm. who gets access to it. So it's treated, the property rights are treated differently for use in the developing world, and Arcadia, the private firm, gets to market it in developed countries where those challenges can be mediated by the marketplace. Um, yes. Uh, just, you know, I've been listening to this. Uh, I'm a farmer. I, was I just going to ask you. I, I need uh, resources and, uh, and seed. And my world uh, is Chris Greer, Jim, Luis. Cass over there, you know, um, they, you know, we have, we have resources, we have, you know, we have varietal development, and, and, and then we have, we have water resource exports, experts, you know, to me, how do we transfer that, and not necessarily transfer, but utilize those resources in the, in the countries that need it. I mean, you know, California is the most highly regulated agricultural uh, industry probably in the world. Um, and we are measuring water. We're having to create um, nitrogen banks or budgets. We're uh, now in the process of having to measure water. Uh, there's very sophisticated work done now on, on drip irrigation, uh, which a lot of countries can't have. But but there there are technologies that will transfer and and to but me, isn't this a result of um, we legislation? Could transfer half the people here to work with you know I, I mean the, I don't think we need to reinvent the wheel to farm. It's how do we transfer that expertise from here to those countries that need that assistance? Right. And, and you know there are uh, four, over four hundred crops grown in this state. And there are a lot of small cooperative extension people that are working from, with people around, from around the world that are actually growing crops here. Now, that doesn't necessarily extend to, the, to, the, to an African climate, but it certainly would give someone a start uh, in, in helping. But, you know, they're, they're just – and California is not the only state, but that's my world, and uh, I'm very proud of, of what – what we have here, and, and it's how do we transfer that? Well, I mean, um, and just, obviously, and, some and, of it and is I want to speak one more. I, you, we, I you know can we have can't speak another long, 17 but, seconds. And <laughs> as, far as, as far as the GMO type seed, you know, that's a tool. That's one of the tools I use. And I, I have friends that will grow GMO, not in California. We don't grow it because of political reasons. But um, in, in the South, they will grow a GMO crop to get rid of red rice, and then they'll go back to their conventional because it's a better quality rice. And so they're using that as a cultural management tool. So... Um, You've exceeded your 17 seconds. I'm, I'm finished. Just, oh. can I, can I, I just, don't want to go, into the, go back into the GMO thing. It is a tool, and when you say, gee, we can't use it here for political reasons, it makes me want to scream. But I would rather... Because tools shouldn't be used for political reasons in that way. However... Mike. Cheryl, I, would, I was wondering if maybe you would chip in on what all this means for women in, a, in developing countries. Okay. And I can be more specific if you want. <laughs> well, I think the, the piece that we haven't really 
we've been kind of edging around but haven't really talked about is what is our vision for what the world and the agricultural world would have to look like in order for us to be able to feed that many people? Um, and maybe, maybe in some places it would include GMOs and maybe not. We could talk about that. I, I agree that it's probably a relatively small piece of it. When I think about what the world would have to look like, it's going to be a real mix of different types of agriculture. There's going to be some large-scale, sort of very modern agriculture going on. There's also going to be, if we're actually interested in feeding people in Africa, a lot of that's going to continue to be done by smallholder agriculture, much of which is done by women. Um, and so we would have to really look at how do we make sure that smallholder agriculture really can thrive. And I have been on many farms in Africa that looked you know, you just think there's no way that this particular farm could feed a large family. And then you go and you see farms where you say, oh, this is it. This is how you do it. There are places where it really is succeeding, where there are a variety of crops being grown, where there's combinations of crops and livestock. And, and what's the, the difference with the way people are? I mean, are they treated different? Are women treated different in those places? Or... Why is one farm successful and one is something you worry about? I think a huge range of things. Um, one of the issues is one of the issues is land tenure, right? Do you have do you have access and control, not necessarily titles, but do you have secure tenure to the land? So are you willing? Are you able to invest in it? Do you have enough resources that you're not trying to just pull everything out of the land to feed your family this week? Um, and can you actually have what you need to invest in it? Um, so, so a range of reasons why that, why that would be. Ensuring that women smallholders have secure tenure to land, um, ensuring that they have access to the kinds of inputs that they need, access to credit, access to education is going to make a difference. Um, um, do we have to do this in an international way for it to succeed? I mean, we're talking about a problem that is a global problem like climate change. But it is also an individual problem in individual countries and in individual communities. Will we be able to feed the world in 20, 30 years if we don't do this in a sort of broad international approach? Yeah. Strange as it may seem, I'd like to try to respond to that. Uh, what we've been hearing... Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it, Strange. It's... Uh, it's actually coming out in, in what we just heard, in fact, it's coming out. I think one, one issue here is to say that, I want to say two things really, but what, the first thing is that uh, to say how can we feed the world is not quite the right way to say it. It's this way. How can we feed this country? How can we feed this country? How can we feed that country? Each country, take country by country by country. Each country has different allocations of land resources, soil resources, water resources, political and so forth. You've got to go country by country, and then you can build it up. Software allows you to do that, global models and so forth. But you don't start up here with a 50,000-foot view. You start down here, science-based, local level. And what you've seen in Africa shows that very, very clearly. It's, not, it's even on the pixel level of saying this farm, that farm. And that's right. And when farmers see what works, they tell each other. And pretty soon it's spreading. You don't have to worry about it. So that's a partial comment on this first part. But it's country by country, region by region, if you like, pixel by pixel. The second thing is there is actually low-hanging fruit. 
If you take a look at the yields of, say, maize, something like that in sub-Saharan Africa, they're really low. They're really low. That's why people are hungry. Okay, how can you get them up to maybe twice what they are? So at least people can start thinking about raising food on less land so they can raise food that they can sell, like we do in California, have a surplus and so forth. And the answer is it goes back to the green water, which isn't controlled by politics. It comes from the rain. Okay, now if you look at the situation, what you see is that only about <clears throat> half or less of the water, often it's very small, is actually going through the crop. It's, most of it is, is being lost to evaporation in the sky, which does no good for growing the crops. So the low-hanging fruit is, how do you move that water from going into the sky through the soil to going through the crop you're raising so it creates a biomass? Well, people know how to do that with relatively low inputs. There also is some basic science and so forth one could talk about, and it would include GMO as a matter of fact, but that's another issue. The, the point is that this can be done, it is being done in Africa, and where people have learned to sh do what's called the vapor shift. It means you move the water, the green water, and remember, there, is, <clears throat> there are 60,000 cubic kilometers of green water flowing every year, and only 12,000 cubic kilometers of blue water flowing that we can actually do anything with and fight over and drink and all the rest of it. So remember, there's an awful lot of that water. Um, if, if you make that shift and you, and you move it, you can, you can, in fact, easily double, easily meaning hard work in two or three years, double the, the crop yield uh, anywhere you want to try to do it with g decent management. Okay, I am sure that's true, but it requires political cooperation and it requires something else. You said the words get food to the market. They have to go on roads. They have to have refrigeration. They have to be taken in a timely manner, and in lots of places, that's an impossibility right now. So how much do we worry about the infrastructure in these countries? I would say in lots of places, that is a possibility right now. No, of course it is, but you know, we yeah. can talk about all the great things, but there are some problems. And one of the problems is that there are many places in the world where infrastructure does not contribute to people eating properly. I would like to point out that here we are in this room with, with one of the greatest universities in the world uh, and the greatest agricultural systems in the world, talking about the transfer of knowledge, when in fact, <clears throat> in, in many universities across the United States now, uh, there is this call for taking these ideas of food systems and educating the public in a variety of ways, in a variety of contexts, not just our public, but the public of other countries because there are increasing numbers of students from all over the world coming into these universities like this one and, and the university I come from and they want to be educated. There's a real demand for this and that's a demand that we can fulfill and will begin to help solve some of this transfer of knowledge that's been discussing, we've been discussing back and forth. So there's a, there's a concrete thing that's already existing, we're already known for it, we need to promote it better. Um, yeah, Rebecca. To, Wait, let's. Oh, to, to return to the question of local versus international. Wait, solutions. before you do that, I just want to ask: Do you and your friends plan to get into a food corps and go to poor places when you're out of school? Um, some of us, yes. Because um, that would be a logical <laughs> thing to do if you cared about these things, right. like I a mean, peace corps. So we're, we're recruiting. Oh, yes, yeah. <laughs> um, I think a lot of students in my generation are starting to look at. Uh, policy solutions at the international level because it seems that that will be most effective. And uh, to quote my favorite show, The West Wing, I think that the code of faithful service is the unwritten commandment that says that we shall give our children better than ourselves. 
and uh, can't quote the West Wing. You were doing fine till then. <laughs> but to return to the question of local versus international policy, solution, uh, policy solutions, while well, I do agree with Garrison that it's very important to consider local solutions, there's definitely a role for international institutions because when we're thinking about water and agriculture especially, there's over 300 international transboundary water bodies, aquifers, river basins, and rivers and 70% of global freshwater goes to agriculture. So at a certain level, it is going to be crucial to have international agreements that dictate who gets to use what water. On this, on this question of international solutions, and you mentioned infrastructure, that's not the first one I would think of because most international support for infrastructure tends to be for things like railroads and superhighways. And that's not the kind of infrastructure that helps no, feed true. hungry people, right? That's it's small, true. local feeder roads, things like that. Yeah. So that speaks, I think, to Garrison's point about bottom-up farmer and community-controlled uh, types of processes. At the international level, I think the first thing is to stop doing some of the bad things, right? We've spent a... <laughs> we spent, well, I mean, we've spent a, we've spent a long time um, setting up systems that... Um, you know, basically turn resources like land and food and water into commodities in a kind of a, you know, in a kind when of a speculative we, game. I would say um, the United States, the Bretton Woods institutions, WTO, myriad free trade agree bilateral free trade agreements, currently ones that are being negotiated now, especially in agreements that have empowered investors and have deregulated um, financial markets in ways that make the, all of the infrastructure extractive mm -hmm. rather than something that can help communities add value where they are and manage their resources responsibly. So I think, you know, uh, much stronger regulation on, uh, on Wall Street. Um, I think, uh, uh, you know, things like a financial transaction tax. There's a whole set of things that could be done and need to be done internationally before we get to the sort of technology side of, well, what sort of agricultural things should we do at local levels in different places? But see, this is where you're starting to lose me because we had a financial crisis in this country that involved banks and no regulation came out of that. Mm -hmm. So it's hard for me to see how we're going to regulate these things properly when we don't even regulate the things that are quite evidently causing terrible harm to us. You know, I, I want to respond to that, um, the comments. Uh, you know, I, I've struggled from the day I began farming with what is a corporate farm versus what is a family farm and what have you. And, and some families have big farming operations. And if you're in the Midwest and you have 12,000 acres of corn, that's not considered probably a big farming operation. But I think the important thing to keep in mind is regardless of the size of these operations, there is technology and expertise that can be learned that can be transferred. You know, these, these bigger problems, you've got to let government sort out. We have people starving, so how do we transfer that expertise and these people in the room are on all size farms and so um, it's it's figuring out a way to transfer it and and one of the things I was thinking about uh, when when Garrison made the comment you know farmers are a funny funny group uh, it could be December and if I move a tractor down the road people are watching like what are you doing and where are you going I mean you know I'm just maybe moving into a shop 
But same thing at harvest time. If I move a combine down the road and it's July, but harvest is September, people start getting very nervous. If we could figure out ways to strategically set up small farms that got visibility, you know, other people are going to take note of that, assuming that they have the availability of the resources uh, to, to, to make them successful. So, John, uh, farmers are smart, and that's, that's one of the things we've learned in uh, the field of agricultural development, and they will adopt solutions that work for their, their community and, and their personal livelihood, their family livelihood. Um, so uh, we've worked, for example, uh, to, to promote agroforestry techniques so that farmers in forested areas can grow crops that can make money instead of turning to cutting down the trees to sell the trees. Right. Some of those projects were, were uh, done... Um, in collaboration with Jim Harkness's old employer, WWF, mm -hmm. um, not the World Wrestling Federation, the other one. Um, they were involved. And, and uh, in terms of infrastructure, it does matter um, uh, if farmers are going to be able to access more than their village, yeah. if they want to access uh, national or, or urban markets or international markets. And so we have been building roads. Um, uh, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, in particular, has a, a, a substantial feeder road building um, program in a number of countries uh, in our Feed the Future effort. Um, so in Ghana, in, in uh, Guatemala, and other places, we built thousands of kilometers of feeder roads to connect small rural communities to the larger market towns or the, the large urban centers. And so this all matters. We need these comprehensive solutions. I'm sensing intense yeah. waves of frustration from you. Well, a couple, a couple of points. I think uh, in terms of feeding the world, we, we really need to also focus in on policy making because it's not just, if it were just technology and if it were just infrastructure, since it's a global panel, we can talk about the US, you would not have the kind of hunger rates you have in Fresno and Tulare. Uh, one of the you know, uh, major agricultural producing areas of the country, you would not have the kind of hunger we have in this great nation, right? So when we talk about that, I, I, you know, so far we have not talked about ISTAD a whole assessment that was done in terms of how we're going to feed the world, which kind of came out some very strong recommendations, uh, which was approved and recognized and ratified by majority of the nations, unfortunately not by the United States, uh, which because it said business as usual is not an option. And it's really important to recognize the importance of policy space for each nation to be able to determine what is going to be the best way to ensure that we have policies that end poverty, that provide living wage jobs, so we can tackle hunger uh, right at the, at the base of the problem itself. And lastly, I would say, we all know how to feed this world, like we know how to uh, have meaningful jobs for all. The problem is to figure out how do we prevent those from being in power who prevent that from happening. And I think that's the crux of the I, I agree with your I agree with your comments very much, and I we have to realize that one thing we haven't talked about yet is the fact that there's been a huge demographic shift in this world of ours from rural to urban, partly because the farms are not paying, and that's the only way that people can get any kind of meaningful food is to move into the cities because their farms are not producing it in many parts of the world, but. The important thing is, is that when you move into the city, it's the price of food that dominates whether or not you can have enough food to eat. 
And, and therefore, I return to the commodities market argument that was presented before. That's one of the really important factors. In the last decade or so, the invasion, if you will, of very large amounts of money into the commodities market has flooded it. It's now evident, I think, uh, again, I'll just say that Mary Robinson's uh, connections with uh, Oxfam. Oxfam um, uh, put out a report in, in July, I think, of this last summer, um, demonstrating how critically important that flood of new money into the commodities market uh, uh, presented as a way of, of volatilizing the prices of food throughout the entire world. Food is a global issue because it's food marketing is globalized. And, and the price of corn in, in the United States becomes the same price of corn in other countries because that's the, that's the, it's like water. It's seeking its own level. So we need to build this into the way we talk and the way we plan and the way we think about it because we're a piece of it, if you will, when we talk about agriculture, but it's not the entire picture. We need to begin to think about these other dimensions too. Um, <clears throat> you know, for a long time, ever since I've been an academic, there have been these big debates around the problem of feeding the world is an issue of production versus one of distribution. And it's, it's a pointless argument. I mean, I think everybody in the panel has kind of come to the point that if you, if you can't afford food, it really doesn't matter how much there is. So income distribution comes first, and therefore things like agrarian reform and minimum wage laws and, and the right of labor to organize, all those things are critical and they've been shown to be so. But it's even more complicated than that. And I want to I raise this little issue. Um, it turns out that the relationship between increases in food production at a national level and the increase in income at a national level are only indifferently correlated with reduction of malnutrition measured by stunting and wasting. Right? So countries vary a lot in how much difference it makes to increase food production uh, or to increase income. So India is an interesting case. It has probably the worst elasticity of response of stunting and wasting to income increases and food increases in the world. And within India, the only state, this won't be a surprise to Anuradha, that the only state that actually has a good response is the state of Kerala. What have they done in Kerala? They had, had very early intervention uh, in behalf of, of women and, and female children so that they actually have more females than males uh, as opposed to the rest of India where there are millions of missing women. Land reform happened very early. Very serious public health sector. Lots of, of attention paid to childhood nutrition in the schools and to uh, public hygiene and public health. So it may very well be that those public priorities which reflect a progressive political system, it may be rare, but it certainly is doable at a per capita income that is below India's mean, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I think, we, but, but also to recognize this is the Archimedes problem. I mean, Archimedes said, give me a lever long enough and a place to stand and I will move the world. Fair enough. Who gives the lever? <laughs> and where is the place you stand? In Kerala, it was decades of mobilization from the bottom on agrarian issues and labor issues, successful mobilization, created a social democracy at the state level. Those are very rare political conditions. Uh, and I think the political economy of concentration of wealth is pointing in the opposite direction, that those political possibilities are not nearly as strong as they might have been before we had these fantastic increases 
in concentration of wealth, both internationally and nationally. I think Jim feels that. Well, I, I would just say, you know, we have somebody here from Ireland, a country that was exporting food throughout the Great Famine. So the notion that countries can increase food production um, and, and, you know, still have malnutrition or starvation, China during the Great Leap Forward famine was exporting food. Um, so, uh, you know, I think this, this gets to this fact of distribution and, and political power, which I think is at the root of this, that, you know, Don, for me, the reason people are hungry in other countries is not because they lack advanced agricultural technology. That's but then what, what should we, the world, do about that? Yeah, because a they, lot of what people have been saying today is, can, let's let countries use the brains they have and find solutions that make sense for them. Fine. Can I, can I, ask can I, uh, can I talk oh, about yeah. this a little bit? So, you, you may. Uh, uh, many people here seem to be interested in technology transfer. And one of the things that we don't do enough of is actually go spend time in developing countries. Uh, and I don't mean as tourists, but spend a month. Spend a month in a small village in uh, wherever and learn about, uh, you know, what is life like there and what are the conditions without ever trying to even think about technology transfer. Just think about what is it like there. And too many uh, government-sponsored programs are aimed at bringing students here. I came to the U.S. actually, not from a developing country. I'm from Belgium, uh, in 1960. And many of these people who come here stay. So the, the solution is not to bring more students to University of California, uh, although that, that, is, uh, that is a good thing. Uh, but then to ensure to have mechanisms that ensure that those students or postdocs or whatever, grad students, uh, go back to their countries by giving them uh, the support that they need in order to get started to work in their own country. And that has to be accompanied by us going there, not just by bringing them here, but us going there for a month or two months. And one of the disconcerting things that I found is that the children of smallholders, they're not interested in being smallholders. They want to learn how to use computers and work for banks. Uh, uh, well, I mean, that is actually part of the problem. And <laughs> it's probably not realistic to pretend that won't change, or that, that will change. I think Rebecca feels the need to yes. say Yes, speaking something. of students at the University of California um, working abroad, at, to give a plug for the Blum Center for Developing Economies at UC Berkeley, which also operates at UC Davis, it's created an ecosystem for undergraduate students to, to do just that, to work both domestically and internationally. I spent three months in Cochabamba, Bolivia last summer, and will be returning this summer for gender equity and water-related projects in uh, rural and peri-urban schools. And the Global Poverty Minor at UC Berkeley has allowed students to take coursework that lets them study the causes and structures of poverty and inequality and then have an international experience that is financially supported by the Blum Center, and then return and take a course where you reflect critically on your experience. And I think that this sort of movement to have that on-the-ground experience will breed the next generation of sensitive policymakers. I hope I'm you're right. Actually, 
because I think it's missed, most of the conversation is missing the point. Uh, <laughs> I don't know anyone in Africa who's really happy to live in poverty. I've never seen anyone say, you know, we're really thrilled living in poverty, suffering malnutrition, chronic hunger, all the diseases that are associated with that. The typical farmer in Africa is on one and a half to two hectares. The land has been farmed for 10,000 years. The soil was this thick when it began. It's not like Davis, California with 65 feet of soil. It's all, it's all bad. You know, they, didn't, they didn't choose this soil. They, it's just the birthright that they were ended up with. And when I look at crops that I work on, and I do work on a number of crops uh, from a private-held company that's put in the public domain, the yields of cacao were the same 100 years ago till about two years ago, three years ago, when we really started bringing modern genetics to traditional breeding because you can't do anything that would be this earlier topic we had in these trees. And it's a tree crop, but it has to be improved. We have measured for 40 years the decline of rainfall and the increase of temperature in sub-Saharan Africa. We know it's draconian as a response, and Mary referred to the shocks on the weakest economies in the world. That's what's happening. They're, they're being shocked. But we have to change the productivity model. If we don't get three times to four times the productivity per tree, whether it's uh, physical water use efficiency, nutrient use efficiency, then the game is over. And nobody's going to stay in the rural sector. Why would they stay there and live in poverty? Well, so productivity is going to be one of the first keys. I, now, the other thing, if I could just make one pitch for what Mary said, trees. This is, this is a, a funny word that we don't talk about trees as evergreen agriculture. She mentioned nitrogen-fixing trees. The Fiderbia albedia can increase the yields because it's a nitrogen-fixing tree three times in Mali, which has already happened in Tanzania for maize. Fruit trees, fodder trees, timber trees, medicinal trees so you can have your own medicine locally. High-value trees that you can sell to the European market, which likes to make fancy furniture and food and oil trees, because in a terrible drought, you can eat the seed of certain oil seed trees, and you're going to get by because you have to live. So, so if we take this down, my final 17 seconds here. We take this way down, your final okay, if we take this down to the death. basic fundamental um, issues, none of this will happen without a gross change of how we look at financing into the rural sector. Okay. Did you want to say something? Yes. Um, well, on the basis of our work that we've been doing with the farming community, smallholders, and pastoralists in Africa, three terms that I would want to put out again, policy space, transparency, and political empowerment, the kind, Ron, you were talking about. Because we've heard about transfer and how do we work with third world countries, developing countries, and how do we provide infrastructure or um, knowledge. One of the big things that's happening right now is this focus on investment. Let's invest in, in, in agriculture, an area which developing countries were told not to invest in by uh, the Bretton Woods institutions, for instance, for the longest time. You know, you wanted to make the government small enough to drown it in the bathtub, right? So, and suddenly it is investment in agriculture. Now, you look at Mozambique, you have set up an agency, CPI. In Tanzania, there's Tanzania Investment Center. In Ethiopia, you have a similar center. They all have different names. You go to their website, it's identical word by word. This whole kind of 
development model, the new paradigm that has been sent by donor countries, by uh, development agencies, as well as by the World Bank Group, is one of now invest in your, let the private investors come in and invest in agriculture in your land and water. The result is in Ethiopia, while we're talking about ending food security, a country which already has 10 to 15 million people dependent on food aid, you have 1.5 million people being forcibly relocated so that big plantations can come in, owned by the Malaysians, the largest investors, unfortunately, my country, India, for cotton. And we can't ignore those. You look at Zambia, which has taken loans from the World Bank to do this whole farm block scheme, giving away a million hectares of land. We are working in Papua New Guinea, where nearly 11 million hectares of land uh, are being given away for logging and special agricultural business leases. So, uh, Mary, you talked about people are moving away from land, not just because of climate change, but the development paradigm, which is coming from outside, which takes... Uh, not into account the aspirations of the local people, the, the ways of life of the pastoralists, and this top-down model, one-size-fits-all, does not work. People in Africa, Asia, Latin America need to f know. They know how to feed themselves. Perhaps we need to figure out how do we get out of the way. Do you, I mean, <laughs> that, that seems to be what you're arguing, and it does seem to me that there's some agreement here, and I think in the world, that we have a lot of tools, and those tools are appropriate, and they would probably help, and yet it's up to... It, we also have some road barriers, which seem to be investments, whether they're investment companies, whether they're large farm corporations, whether they're countries or international agreements. What I don't get is how you get out of the way. Like, how you let people do what you think they ought to do. Because one of the things that is happening, and it will happen no matter, in India, for instance, people are leaving the land. You know, they talk about suicide farmers, and they talk about it, I won't mention the word, but for the wrong reason. People commit suicide when there's no water, and they can't farm, and they are living in slums in Mumbai because it's way better than what they had. And that isn't changing. And as long as that isn't changing, I think some of the rest of this stuff is kind of besides the point. Even though I agree with what you say completely. Yeah. I, I really don't like this, this international tamasha about farmer suicides in India. I was in, I was in Kenya and the, head of the chair of the agricultural, the parliamentary agricultural committee said, yeah, we've read all the data about this, this agriculture, this and that and the other, but all the farmers in India are committing suicide. The farmer suicide rate nationally in India is low and stable. It's one-fifth that of other categories. The most at-risk person in India for committing suicide is urban, and at the ages of 10 to 14, it's female. I mean, there are lots of people in India in desperate situations, but it is simply not true that there's an epidemic of farmer suicides in India. And yet you will read this on every web page and all kinds of award-winning films. It's just one of these huge hoaxes like Obama not having a birth certificate. Once, <laughs> once it gets established on the web, it becomes reality. And, and I've asked suicide farmers in the most suicide-prone, the quote-unquote most suicide-prone district, I've asked them about this, and they said, A, it's embarrassing you ask us questions like that. And I said, I'm sorry. We live in the West. We see media presentations. The Guardian has something about Indian suicides every other day and so on. I said, it, it's embarrassing, but we, we're asking because we want to know. We actually do want to know what the situation is. And they said, what kinds of people do these urban folks think we are? 
that we would abandon our families just because we're in debt. And we, we may or may not be in debt, but we've always been in debt because farmers are frequently in debt. So to the extent that, that one can think of suicide as a response to some kind of generic crisis in Indian agriculture, there, there are certainly desperate inequality in Indian agriculture. There are certainly class inequalities that are extreme. Most people in rural India do not own land. Right? Most people are scrambling. There's a lot of labor mobility that's forced. But it is not that farmers look at their crop at the end of the season and commit suicide. But it, I, I think that's beside the point because what their kids do is leave. That's and, right. Absolutely. And that's the point. It doesn't, I mean, it isn't that it doesn't matter but whether it, their parents commit suicide, but that is not the issue. The issue is young people today have no incentive or desire to do anything but get the hell out. But that's if they don't see... a a prosperous livelihood or a reasonably uh, 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 sound livelihood yeah. in agriculture. And so that, that involves changing uh, the, the agricultural economy in these uh, places. Um, and, and that's something that, it, that, the, that many developing countries have taken on as a national priority. Because one of the great learnings of the past decade or two of, of development assistance work has been the recognition that solutions won't work if they're imposed from the outside. Um, they have to uh, be generated first and foremost by the countries involved. Um, and those are national priorities for agricultural development. And so in Africa, for example, we've seen the, the great success of the Comprehensive African Agricultural Development Program, where, whereby the leaders of Africa's countries committed to develop national plans with national priorities for their agricultural development. Those priorities have often included a substantial role for private sector development in agriculture. And so a subset of those countries um, worked uh, to, to establish something called the Grow Africa Partnership, where they said, we want to find ways to uh, um, improve the conditions for private sector activity, both domestic and international. And, they, and, and so they did create policy space for private sector activity committed to policy changes. Um, the G8 uh, uh, reached out, the group of eight, the, some of the uh, largest economies in the world, reached out to work with several of these countries to, to uh, um, commit resources aligned behind their national priorities, mm -hmm. but also to help um, uh, foster uh, connections with private firms that wanted to invest. And these are firms large and small. These are firms, uh, for example, an Israeli irrigation firm that is doing drip irrigation work, another uh, Indian irrigation firm that's similarly doing low-cost, locally adapted solutions for irrigation. Um, it's uh, local companies like uh, a Mozambican farm that's introducing orange flesh sweet potatoes and other highly nutritious crops into the local uh, farming communities, so showing that these changes can happen and can be beneficial. Um, and, uh, and it's also large firms uh, from the United States and, and, and elsewhere. Um, but it, it really requires collaboration between, first of all, led by the countries involved, but then collaboration with donor nations, with international research institutions, with international organizations, mm -hmm. um, with universities, and so on. Um, and it also requires recognition of the complexity of the problems that we know, for example, that we need to address nutrition head-on if we're going to make progress. Um, we can't just feed, uh, fill bellies. We need to also provide the full set of nutrition. It means looking at the challenges of gender, um, because we know that uh, women farmers uh, generally have, in developing countries, generally have um, uh, unequal access to the best farming inputs. And so if you equalize that access, you get an outsized benefit. So well, we're learning. I think Cheryl wanted to... Uh... <laughs>
I wanted actually to come back to your point, which is that people are leaving the farm, but the idea that that's something new is, right, people have always been leaving the farm. My mother got off the farm in Illinois as fast as she possibly could, and so I grew up 10 miles from here in California. Um, where they so, have no farms. <laughs> where there were no farms, right. <laughs> there, weren't, there weren't very many farms, and it, um, there were some. She was not on one of them. <laughs> Right. So that, that phenomenon has been going on, I think, as long as there's been farms. There have been people moving to the city. Part of what we have to think about is not only increasing thinking about the agriculture piece of it, but thinking about rural economies. If we want to have vibrant farms, um, we also need to have vibrant rural economies. And those two things are not necessarily the same, but they need to go hand in hand. So not only do people, and again, I'm thinking about African farmers, not only do they have to be able to produce a little bit more, but they have to be able to do some of the other value added in their communities so that they're earning more money and other people in their communities can be earning money, and so that the rural communities are places where people want to live, so that it isn't better to go and live in the slums than to stay in the, in the rural communities. Um, could I speak to the productivity, raising productivity to raise incomes? Um, you can quickly, and then I want to talk about the cosmos. Oh, the cosmos. Well, <laughs> far be it for me to prevent the cosmos. No, no, go um, ahead. From evol- unfolding as it should. Um, I, th- I mean, H- Howard, I, I don't know. I'm not familiar with the Mars program, but you obviously have a sophisticated understanding of the, um, of the productivity and income and other needs of, uh, of farmers in those areas. And so it sounds like you're developing sort of diversified systems of you know, income streams, et cetera. But take coffee, for instance. The, you know, the large coffee companies five years ago, well, actually for the last 20 years, have invested a lot of money in increasing productivity of small coffee growers and large coffee growers around the world. The result was two billion pounds of excess coffee and a crash in the price of coffee. And when that happened, you know, our, the prices we pay for our lattes went down a little bit but the prices that farmers got were you know, cut by, they get a fifth of what they used to. Yeah. So the notion that better productivity is going to lead to higher incomes is not right. If farmers don't have economic power, mm-hmm. if they can't organize themselves to protect themselves in the marketplace, or if the market is dominated by monopolies that essentially set the price for them. So those are some of the structural things that countries need to be able to deal with, but that also could be dealt with internationally. There's no international structure for looking at antitrust, okay. and I think that's a shame. You've brought up an issue that is going to intervene in my cosmic thoughts. Sorry. No, it's good. Um, how do we make an internet? I mean, there has to be a way to have some framework that makes sense, and I don't see one. I think we're all talking about things that maybe we largely agree about, except they don't get implemented, and people don't get the aid they need. They don't get People don't get out of the way of the people who need them to get out of the way. And we have a lot of private enterprise, and I'm not anti, but that is an issue that has to be dealt with, too. And I don't, I don't see that happening, and I kind of think that has to happen. How do we, who does that? I mean, world bodies, the UN, to me, is one of the most useless organizations in human history. I mean, but that's not an accident. So. <laughs> Can I, can I try at least a partial response? Yes. So, so I uh, am an American. Just on, on commodity prices, uh, the G20, the larger grouping of 20 of the largest country, uh, economies in the world, um, did 
take a look at this problem and um, came up with something that we hope will help, which is called the Agricultural Market Information System. And it gets at the problem of information. You know, in, in economics, uh, one of the reasons that you see volatility is often asymmetric access to information. Somebody knows something and someone else doesn't, so they try and um, take advantage of that for, for, for profit. Um, uh, so the agricultural market information system is, is aimed at uh, uh, making progress in equalizing access to what, what's going on with commodity prices, what's going on with commodity stocks, food commodities um, of, uh, 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 around the world. And it'll take a while to get fully up and running, but it will help. Um, we also established through the G20 a, uh, a rapid response forum so that there's a, a system for the largest countries in the world, the largest economies in the world, to get together when price volatility strikes. Again, this is something, some of the learning that's gone on since the, the uh, uh, recent price spikes in 2007, 2008, that threw so many tens of millions of people back into poverty and hunger. So we're making, we, we are taking steps. Um, we're, and also it, ha it needs to happen, again, in developing countries um, themselves, and we're seeing changes there as well. So for example, Ethiopia, um, uh, has established a, 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 an Ethiopian commodities exchange so that uh, uh, local sellers, farmers, and, and, and middlemen can uh, uh, get access to market information in Ethiopia and, and internationally more efficiently on coffee and other commodities, corn and so on. Is that get, what you mean by get, getting out of the way? <laughs> well, I mean, just, uh, I know, Jim, you wanted to kind of address this, but... Um, one of the things around speculation, especially since the 2007 food price crisis, and it's linked to the financial crisis where actors, pension funds, and others are looking, including university endowments, are looking at the next soft commodity to invest in, and agriculture is that one that they've been lured towards. The need for regulation becomes very important. There were attempts, Dodd-Frank Act and other attempts that have been made. They haven't been followed through. And it really, again, comes back to the issue of food democracy and knowledge and transparency that we as citizens can actually be involved in. What bills are there? I mean, the fact that people that know nothing about agriculture are investing, are controlling, indulging in speculative act, uh, activities, uh, if you use the framework of human rights, it should really be a crime against humanity that they can play around and the speculation that happens which will impact the poorest in poor countries, they need to be held accountable. And again, because it's a global forum and we talk wait, about people... How would they be held? That's what I mean by the UN is useless. Not that we shouldn't have it, but it should do something. Because it doesn't seem to do anything. Like, how do we hold people accountable? Well, in, in, in terms of just within the countries itself and United States, the kind of deregulation that we have seen on the Wall Street that allowed for the speculative activities around food and agriculture, commodities, it can be a national process. I mean, I don't want to, you know, say at the UN level, I mean, as Jim said, it's not an accident that we, it's become a fig leaf. So it's very deliberate the way what has happened with it. But one thing I did want to come back to we have talked about people in developing countries, young people not wanting to stay on land. Mm -hmm. U.S. is the canary of, of this industrial agricultural model that has been sent around the world. Look at the average age of farmer in the United States, 58 years and older. Uh, if, uh, and if you look at uh, the, the, and you talked about rural economies, the poorest 50 counties in the United States, 48 of them are rural counties. 
So what happened with the policy making that instead of just focusing on technology and how we increase food production, we forgot about communities and farming families and communities, and our policies had to be centered around them instead of outside like we have. And to make the change, we need social movements. That's the political process. That's the process that lights the match under the, under the political process. It's the social movements. It's the social movements that the average spring, for example, um, can be really closely traced to the price of food and the increase in price of food. So we need all social movements. I brought with me a social movement that we're starting at my university just as a quick little thing. Every, every university has a T-shirt. Well, this one is on food waste. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if you can okay, see it. Okay, we'll but, allow you to have an advertisement. <coughs> but yes, yes. I'm not trying to advertise that because I'm really pr very peripherally involved other than getting the T-shirt. But it, And it was in my suitcase. And, <laughs> and my point, though, is, is that... The T-shirt's made in Haiti, by the way. <laughs> We're continuing. I have one. <laughs> <laughs> The, these social movements make a difference, and if we can get they, and they then create the climate for the kinds of things that you want to see enacted, so, and the kinds of things that ultimately get enacted by the G20 and all the other well, things. Well, maybe that we're I'm about. overly um, optimistic. You know, as I said, I have a place in the Hudson Valley, and I see lots of social movement. I see lots of young farmers now. You know, it doesn't move the dial yet, but there are a lot of young people trying to make it in the farming world. And they have what I would consider to be really good intentions about communities. And it's very hard for them. It's very hard in this country, in a prosperous part of this country, for them to make a go of it. So that makes me wonder, in the developing world, again, this question of what should R, by R I mean rich folks. And I think we maybe should also talk about China when we say us because they're going to be running the world soon, and we should discuss that. Um, no, but in all honesty, I think if you go around certain parts of Africa, every school, every hospital, every motorcycle, it's Chinese. And that is either a good or a bad thing, depending upon your perspective. I'm not sure it's an entirely bad thing. Shouldn't we also recognize that there's winners and losers in agriculture? The early adapters to modernizing their crop, getting fertilizer, uh, tend to win in the rural sector almost everywhere. And it's just an inevitability. I mean, I don't, I don't know how we can sort of expect that we want the rural sector of Africa to stay rural when, as you said earlier, their children want computers and to work in banks. I mean, I don't know that we can put a moral judgment on the fact that they don't want to do that. However, Africa imported $60 billion worth of food last year. So what would happen if the African Union decided we're going to take $1 billion of that, lay it on to research to improve the crops, monitor it very carefully, however you want to, and forget about necessarily U.S. aid or Chinese aid or anything else, but actually work on the problems they have? I thought I was. <laughs> I, I was spacing the wrong way. I was just simply saying that if $60 billion of actual food imports came into Africa last year, what would it take for us as a global entity to say, why don't we spend $1 billion, which would equal the World Bank money for Africa this year? Next year, it's a, million, a billion four, and actually try to solve the problems locally and bring in the people. Or do we turn to the richest countries in the world and say it's going to take a billion dollars 
to save $60 billion, but it's going to take 15 years to do it. And who's going to put the money on the table to get this done? Is it going to be the private sector? And do you all trust the private sector? It doesn't seem like it in most of the conversation today. Or do you trust the public sector? And most of you don't trust the public sector either. <laughs> that leaves us very few sectors. Just, just to uh, put the billion dollars in perspective, um, in, in 2009, so shortly after the price spikes of, of 2007, 2008, throwing tens of millions of people into poverty, um, the, the leaders of, of the major countries of the world, it was the G8 plus many others, there was about two dozen national leaders and another dozen or so leaders of regional and international organizations and, and uh, research institutions and so on, got together and, and launched the, the uh, L'Aquila Food Security Initiative, named after the city in Italy, L'Aquila, where it was launched. Um, and, and 13 of the donor nations involved uh, committed uh, a total of, of more than $22 billion over three years for food security work, development assistance funding for food security. Um, three years later, we were able to report mission accomplished on that commitment of funds. We actually did budget for the U.S. more than $3.5 billion, which is what we pledged, what President Obama pledged, um, and other countries stepped forward too. So there is money being put against the problem. You know, I, I really appreciate the, the discussion that we've had, but there are a few things I want to talk about. Um, one is farming is hard work. I mean, it's really hard work. And... That's why, there are a lot of reasons why uh, our young people are leaving the farm. Um, and part of it's hard work and part of it's opportunity. And, and so, and there are a lot of other reasons why rural communities are shrinking. Um, you know, we used to have a very, I'm a, from a community of 3,500 people. We had a very vibrant community. We had the Western Auto. We had three, five and ten stores. Well, you know, when, when the big box stores went in, you know, 25 miles away, it made it very difficult for small business owners to survive. And so, you know, the communities shrunk. And, and that's not going to change. That's not going to go back because people are going to, most people with limited incomes are going to farm or farm, shop where, uh, where they can uh, make the most for their dollars. But, but the other thing as a farmer you know, I don't set my price. I'm a price taker. I would love to put a price on, on a commodity. Uh, Paul is going to talk in the next uh, meeting, and I know he would like to be able to put a price on his. And so competition drives these prices. And, and one of the reasons there's probably 400 crops in California is, the, you know, everyone needs to find a niche to be profitable. And, and so um, it's, it's just... Uh, the way it is. And, and another important thing, we've talked a lot about politics, and I've spent too much time in Washington over the years, and f if there's one thing I've learned about politics, it's evolutionary with a capital E. And it's not revolutionary, and so when we start talking about these political problems, um, you know, they are going to take a lot of time. And as I mentioned previously, if I have a problem or I'm trying to figure out, you know, what new cropping I might have an opportunity, I go here and I get results right away. And so, you know, we, we're, we're talking about the ends of the spectrum here. And 
you know, if we want to wait 50 years to try to deal with this politically, I mean, you know, we're going to make progress, but it's going to be slow. And we have, we have people that need food now. And, and so we need to figure out how are we going to get, if it's infrastructure, if it's seed, or if it's resources, where they need to be. And, um, you know, we're still fighting politics in this state, this nation, and, um, you know, you even have a wreck sometimes and you can't solve the political problem. But, but that doesn't mean we cannot address the need at, at the family level in some other way. So of the many things people told me that I should talk about more and better, um, some of them were actually true. Uh, and I think one of them is we're talking about crops a lot, and there's something else about farming, which are animals. And we haven't really talked about how do you raise animals, how do you encourage animals. Should we actually try to be focusing less on animals? And when I say we, it's the universal we. Because as I said in my little thing, and other people say too, you eat a lot of meat, they consume a lot of water, they take a lot of land, they eat a lot of grain. None of that stuff is highly available and cheap. And in answer, also for your health, is to eat less meat. Um, but in the developing world, you know, I think America certainly has a stellar reputation of going in and telling other people what to do, and we're not really in a position to instruct people how to eat. Um, yeah. Um, it's funny because the last panel I sat on began with somebody kicking off with the statistics about a pound of meat you know, versus a pound of grain and yes, how, much, trillion how many calories water. and how much water and all those things. And the caveat there is that's industrially raised beef in the United States. It's, and, and so w w when we... Let me finish. It still takes <laughs> a lot of land. It still takes a lot if, of land. If, you know, and, so if we're, and if we're looking at agriculture and rural economies in a broader sense of not just being about how many calories you produce, but also about livelihoods. Yeah. You know, of the poorest billion or so people on the planet, 70% are dependent in some way on livestock. 14% of, I guess it's the employed population of the world, work directly in dairy, right? And so, and, and the kinds of industrial, um, you know, high input, you know, uh, grain-fed systems that we've developed in this country, where we have lots of land and lots of resources, or, or did when we were developing these systems, those aren't uh, a relief on scarce resources in those countries. In many cases, those are a direct threat to those very poorest people, because they're not going to all of a sudden own a 500-head, you know, milking operation. And so I think, I think we, we, I think, you know, for us, eating less you know, eating less meat is probably not a bad idea. But I think globally, there's probably more attention needed on the, the needs of smallholder, um, arable land, uh, uh, I'm sorry, arid lands, yeah. uh, pastoralists, um, and how, you know, how to support more sustainable practices for them. I, th I think the key word is, and I, is sustainable, and I was going to ask somebody what that means because I have no idea, but... You know, there are ways to raise animals, and there are other ways, and some are useful and some are horrendous, and we do the horrendous mostly. But I still think even if you raise animals in a humane way and having them not grain-fed, it is a shift that's happening that I wouldn't necessarily say 
is a totally uh, positive change. And I also don't know what the outside world can do to tell individuals in countries how to eat. On, on the top. Uh, oh. Just two things. One is in terms of uh, when we talk about, say, a country like India, and we think that because the income is increasing, um, people are beginning to eat more meat. It is true that you, know, you might have a more full diet, but actually evidence points to it's not that suddenly a culture which was not eating beef and other things is suddenly starting to eat that. At the same time, India has become a place which is exporting from eggs to chicken to many African countries, which is ludicrous. I mean, in Sierra Leone, I would, I've seen like these trays and trays of eggs that have come in from India where they have their own chicken. So talk about markets being destroyed and livelihoods of the farmers they're being destroyed. So I think we have to look at the markets, even if it's a tough issue, takes a long time, it's political, and we don't like politics. Like it or not, you've got to deal with it. Second, um, I think we have to talk about pastoralists, because if you're talking about food security in our work, whether it is Kenya, where the Maasai tribes are facing a huge big threat right now as a game resort is coming in and they will start evictions as we speak. In case of Ethiopia, which has been a way of life, which where they depend on their food security on these cows, and it is not just sacred cows, but they also for the cattle is um, necessary for the nourishment. Those ways of life are being destroyed, whether it's the Bodhis and the Mursis and the Suris in Lower Omo, they are being cleared from the lands where these agricultural plantations are going to come in the name of food security. So as long we have an agricultural model which is upside down and backwards and not dealt with because it is political, we're not going to be dealing with food security. And we need to have the pastoralists. Uh, and then to be knowing about the way of life, it was suggested we should not just be going there as tourists, but actually spend real time to understand. So if we, can ha if we don't have these people on the table and we're designing food security programs, I'm afraid they are going to be on the menu. Um, okay. <laughs> Part of also, to respond to your comment about our, um, the way that we tell people what to do, I think to some degree we're already doing that through structural adjustment policies and through the way international corporations operate in developing countries. If you look at the prevalence of Coca-Cola, you can find it in the most rural and the most isolated places on earth, and Coca-Cola has managed to permeate these markets. So I think to some degree, you, the United States corporations already are very much telling people how to eat and what to eat. I don't think that we, we, whoever we are, are going to have a great deal of success in making Coca-Cola go away. I think we should figure out other ways to help or get out of the way. And one of the things that seems to be happening in this group is there's some people who think a kind of you know, top-down governmental approach or international approach is useful and preferable. And it seems like some feel that that would actually be the worst possible thing. And I don't know how we resolve that, except that it probably does need some resolution in some countries, because when we talk about encouraging smallholders in South India or in African countries, what do we mean? By in some I'd like cases. to respond to that, just for a moment. Um, we, we've been talking, obviously, top-down, 
we, the word bottom-up hasn't really come up, and that's what we really need to be thinking about, how to enable the bottom-up. And what we, what we can do is to begin to recognize the social groups that are actually forming. So Via Campesina is, a, is an example of this, of, of a social movement of agriculturalists, small agriculturalists, who are trying to get their rights and then it became internationally uh, recognized. There may be other groups like this that are going on right now that need to be heard. So part of what we can do from bottom-up point of view is listen, because we can learn a lot from these other people who, uh, who have important things to say to us. And then we can begin to enable those people that we've been talking about in the panel um, uh, to, to, in a sense, be understood and, and we can begin to work with them in a much more effective ways. We kind of blew Brian, back. I, I want to let Brian speak because I okay. have a feeling that I think we need help from above. <laughs> and I don't believe in God either, so that's you. Um, it's chaos theory. <laughs> I think we're just dealing with a lot of really difficult issues in interesting ways, and they, they're strands. Somehow we need to, we, eventually, this planet needs to weave those strands together if we're going to succeed. Not a small thing for you to talk about. I, I'm just trying to pretend I've just arrived here from Andromeda Galaxy. <laughs> and, I've, and I've been listening, and, and um, you know, what, have I, what have I learned? Because I come from... Uh, you know, a, a world of um, studying stars and galaxies. So, the um, just a, a couple couple things. One is um, looking back over the history of of life. It, it is it is amazing that this group of people here, right, um, is concerned about the suffering of other members of their their group, and that. That is something really new. I mean, you, um, you rarely, like if you walk around California, you rarely come across a little group of horses worried about the horses in, you know, Argentina. But, I mean, here we are. <laughs> so that, I mean, I, I'm just saying that I, there are ways in which horses are superior to us. I, I don't want to... Um, we, um, the, the human species is, is very mixed, Right? We all know that, but it is, it's just something to behold that here we are, and not just caring, but dedicating our entire lives. Well, you, you are dedicating your entire lives to relieving suffering and, and helping. And that, that is, um, I think it's a, a, an example of, of the deep evolution of heart and mind that has taken place. Right? But, and I would also, another comment is that... Uh, it's not exactly the American agenda either. And it's not the agenda of, of global capitalism. Not really. <laughs> In other words, we uh, you have... You, Even already, from Andromeda, you figured that out? <laughs> you, this group is already moving outside of those kinds of containers. So in other words, I see that we're, we're part of a, of a, a very, very deep process. So the, um, the one, one way to think about our moment is with all of these challenges, we are, we're moving forward, and I, I um, as a way of giving us some, some hope, because, um, I mean, the, the, the suffering is going to possibly even increase, but the average mammalian species 
exists around uh, 2.7 million years. Now, the, um, you know, there have been um, so many species have come and gone, and we don't like to think about the human species ever leaving. But, I mean, and maybe we're not average. You know, we're above average. But let's just imagine we're just a, an average mammalian species. We've been here for 200,000 years. 200,000 years over to our whole tenure of 2.7 million years, that's something like 7 or 8%. We've just begun. Really, the vast majority of our time is in front of us. And so here we are, we're, we're working these things out. I mean, so what, what is ahead of us is unknown, but as, what is in evidence here is that the development of a, of a deeper heart deeper mind understanding. Last comment, last comment. No, no, you can speak forever as far as I'm concerned, but I have one question about this, which is, yeah, I agree, we're kind of like a little speck of carbon, but we seem, what we seem to be really ahead of the other species in doing is destroying the Earth. And, you know, we may only have been here a couple hundred years, a couple hundred thousand years. It's plausible that we're not going to make it another thousand as a result of our activity. Michael, what I've noticed is every time something positive is said, you bring out the negative. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. I'm very... I mean, yeah, I know. I mean, the, the chances are, are, are not great that we'll, that we'll survive. I, I, I agree. <laughs> but I, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to cheer us up here, you know? We've got, we got a lot of hard work ahead of us. We have different you know, jobs. But um, the... Um, because the, the disaster of um, the disaster of the human is worse than anything in the last 65 million years. This was argued in the 1980s, and really by the 1990s, evolutionary biologists, the, the vast majority agree that there's been nothing this destructive. When I say this destructive, I mean um, us and what we've done, and, and the, the major destruction is the agriculture. The elimination of habitat, elimination of species. But so I'm the person that's bringing us down. <laughs> Just but, to be but sure. the last point I want to make, though, is that, I mean, I, I think because this, you know, the power of reason and power of symbolic language is, is un, it's so new. It's never been done before. So we're, we're trying to find our way. And, and we've been using this power for very small concerns, you know, the nation state or intel or whatever it might be, and we start to realize something larger is taking place. But in, in terms of this question, it came up a number of times, which is the way in which the rural community has been something that we've, um, we've wanted to leave, right? The best and the brightest are moving away from it. I, so I think, in part, the, the, um, one of the great achievements of, of 400 years of modern science is it enables us to see what the, the reality of our situation is in a way that no one before really did. And that, that would be this. Life has been on this planet 3.5 billion years. It wasn't until the last 600 million years that topsoil was created. <laughs> topsoil is a very recent creation. I mean, it is... And it is, top, you know, the topsoil, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but in the perspective of evolutionary time, its significance shows itself in a new way. That's what I'm trying to say. So that this little thin layer of topsoil and water, so, so thin on the planet, that is one of the great achievements of the entire universe. And, and the, um, the people that are involved with that, 
are, in a certain sense, the closest to the ultimate mystery of the universe. And, and so that, as, as opposed to being something that, that we, we push away and get away from, it, I, my guess is that part of our evolution will be the recognition that there is really no more essential human activity and nothing more desirable, more significant, more holy than farming. This will be, this will be the understanding from the point of view of the evolution of the universe. Just one last line, one last line. I think this relates directly what, what many of you have brought up. The idea of, of commodifying food, there's something really wrong about that. In other words, it, maybe it worked for a while, but there's something about it, commodifying water, commodifying land, there's something so wrong about that. It's a cosmological reality that, that is way, way, way outside of an economic box. Okay, I have two comments. One is, who wouldn't want to take his class? And <laughs> who thinks right. he's an optimist? <laughs> um, no, that was really fascinating. And I, ag- I agree. I mean, one thing is, we have a public health system, and I think we assume certain things are human rights in terms of health. I think we need to think that way a little more seriously about food and water. Um, but Jim wanted to say something. Yeah, thinking... I'll, you know, I'll see your pessimism and raise you. Um, <laughs> Don't you know, play this game with me, dude. I mean, it, it's striking that at this time when we know more than we ever have in human history about the building blocks of life and, you know, in, in terms of plants and food, we can, you know, we can map a genome so much more quickly than we could just 10 years ago. And yet, this is the time when we're destroying the diversity of, you know, the, the, the libraries out there that we would actually use our new tools to, uh, to do research in um, is, is faster than it's ever been. And the, the scariest part of that is not, for me, even just the raw materials, the, the, the germplasm and the land races and things, but it's the people who develop those, right? It's farmer knowledge. You know, Jonathan was saying farmers are smart. They're smart all over the world, and, and they're why we eat, right? And so this process of people leaving the countryside and leaving it much more quickly than in the past is, you know, it's depriving us within a generation of huge stores of knowledge about location and breeding and what varieties work in a particular space. And so for me, that's the really terrifying um, reality of, of, of what's happening with, with the, the urbanization and the, the devaluing of agriculture. And well, in this, that's why I was saying in this country I find it optimistic and exciting that there are a bunch of young farmers, I think in California, I don't know California as well as New York, who are really trying to make, to move the dial on that. And it isn't very easy for them. And I think we need, I hate to use the word we in this context, but they need help. And then when we get into the they need help, it's the private, the public, the who, and then I think we have a bunch of problems there, which we'll solve after lunch, of course. But, but, but let's, not um, dramatic, let's not make dramatic the, the native land races around the world. I, I mean, really, if we were living on the native land races, have you ever eaten teosinte? <laughs> well, look at a teosinte plant one day and look at modern corn. I think I smoked it. That's a wild plant. Uh, yeah, but it, was, plant. but it was a cultivated plant that became something that is very different. And when you really consider most traditional land races, they are not robust to the environment. 
They are, they are not carrying the future forward the way we'd like to. There may be wonderful things in those things. It takes three to five years to do an improvement on an annual crop. It takes seven to 15 years to improve a tree. You don't have that much time. We don't have that much time. We need to really act. We have hungry people in the world that need the best science, whatever you qualify for that, the best utilization of natural resources, Otherwise, it's not going to happen. We got more coffee in the world because they cut down more trees, not because the trees or the bushes were more productive. We're reaching a point past equipoise. There is no more equipoise in the system. So if we want to go back to native land races, and I started a company that sold exclusively traditional heirloom seed called Seeds of Change, it was great, but it wasn't enough. Because the farmers in the organic industry wouldn't buy them because they weren't productive enough because they wanted hybrid seeds. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate talking about that, but it, we shouldn't romanticize it. The other thing I think, Michael, that we didn't answer your question, which was animal nutrition. And it's not going to be necessarily cows, pigs, and chickens. It's going to be grass cutters and other animals that we normally do not eat in this country, which are the protein backbone in the rural sector. Mm-hmm. Yeah, can I follow up on both? Every, you, you can, we have about five minutes left. So I'll, I'll try to do it very before, briefly then. Yeah. Um, but to go from the cosmological, I mean, the, the universe uh, started out uh, almost entirely hydrogen, right? True. Uh, right, uh, uh, Brian? <laughs> um, uh, and, and it was only over time that other elements were forged in stars and, and so on. Uh, and, and the food system is, is, is a bit like this, and it's because of that cosmological fact. Um, they're, they're, the food system is very good at producing carbohydrates, uh, which provide a lot of calories. Um, but it's, uh, it, it's a bit more of a challenge, requires a bit more attention to get the micronutrients that are needed. Right. And so that is minerals like iron or zinc. Mm-hmm. Um, and the iron might be sometimes best delivered by a bit of animal protein, not a huge steak, but a bit. Um, and, uh, or, or folic acid uh, and, and, uh, that you might get by eating an egg. Not a dozen eggs, but but keeping some egg layers in the in the in the household, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, and dairy likewise. So we need to look at the and but also looking at dietary diversity so that there, that you are using um, uh, um, the backyard of your 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 home in the village to grow some leafy green vegetables or some orange flesh sweet potatoes to round out your food basket. And so nutrition really matters, and it really matters especially in the thousand days window, the the development window that starts at pregnancy and runs through a child's second. And birthday. Mm-hmm. And if you get nutrition right in that period, it uh, means you have a, a, a person who has all the capabilities they need to live, a, to be a productive member of society, to help their household, uh, um, and so on. And if you miss, um, they're permanently stunted. The child is permanently cognitively impaired, and you can never make up for it. And so nutrition matters. Um, so, yeah. A lot of these conversations... Everyone, I'll let everyone talk a little bit, even if I get yelled at. Yeah. A lot of these conversations happen with some very big general statements. How will we feed the world? Young people want to move out of this field. I just wanted to share a couple of anecdotal things. I totally agree with you what's happening in the U.S., this whole phenomenon of young people, a lot of them from UC Berkeley that we are working with, uh, are moving back into agriculture of, you know, in, a, in a very holistic way. They face big challenges from credit to access to land, uh, in some ways very similar to the issues that we're facing overseas. Um, and you know, perhaps before we go for lunch, on an inspiring note, I mean, in our work, again, there was this idea of, um, 
um, you know, a big investor from Iowa who had a deal of 800,000 acres, the largest deal ever in Tanzania, to start, um, you know, a big industrial, you know, farm uh, where they were asking the government to change their policies so they can start growing GMO corn, which was to be converted into biofuels and saying that nobody lives on that land. Over 160,000 people have been on this land, smallholder farmers who have worked with us, fought back. The deal is now stalled because people want to stay on the land and grow the food instead of becoming plantation workers. Similarly, in South Sudan, we saw a former U.S. ambassador from Texas, Harvard Eugene Douglas, get 1 million hectares of land for $25,000 with the promise of growing food for South Sudan. The community that has come back after a civil war finds out that the land that they plan to farm on upon is going to be given away to a U.S. investor, former ambassador for refugee affairs, they basically marched to Juba telling the president, don't even think about it. So people want to also stay on land and have their right to their livelihoods. I agree with you, but I'm also told that I'm not allowed to let anyone speak anymore until after lunch. All of you can think of your questions and I will entertain them all after lunch when we solve all these problems. Thank you very much so far. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.